of Los Altos Institute's uh, 13 Lectures on Original Doctor Who by Stuart Parker. Uh, these episodes are being made available as a free service by our institute. They include uh, both a lecture and question and answer session for each class. However, you may find the question and answer sessions are a little choppy because part, some participants have requested that their voices and remarks be removed. So, yeah, we are in the last stretch. I often want to use the term the third mile because it's the only, like, I have put a lot of thought into the changes they made to the Bible in the King James Version. <laughs> but the only one I really can't explain that I just don't understand is the addition of the third mile, right? Because Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if someone compels you to walk a mile with them, walk another mile with them. Except in the King James Version, where Jesus says, walk two more miles with them. And I mm. don't know why. You'll recall that uh, Colin Dexter titled one of his Inspector Morse mysteries on the fact that it's a complete mystery as to why those guys did that. Because, you know, most of those changes in translation were in service of state-based expropriation and microcredit. But, uh, yeah, anyway, here we are. It's the third mile. And uh, so we're all a little, all a little tired out. But let me say a few words about this show. So first of all, although there are many sources that no doubt in, inspired concurrently both Jeremy Corbyn and David Icke, um, I, uh, we, we can't rule out the idea that this is one of those sources. Because just as we came in with the most racist episode of of the Doctor Who Golden Age. We're going out with the most anti-Semitic episode. Uh, and it's best to confront that. And also just in defense of my theory of Jeremy Corbyn, I think he once again didn't notice. Uh, if, he, if you'd screened this episode for him, I think it's just like that piece of like uh, brick wall art. I honestly think that there's an adorable literalism to the man that um, is a lot of what prevented him successfully defending his leadership of the Labour Party. But there's no doubt there's a really strong strain of unconscious anti-Semitism that structures the show. And the fact that the name of the villainous race are the Usorians from Usorius. Uh, 
that's uh that's pretty that's pretty fucking on the nose there so uh my sense of just how unconscious people should be grows more capacious every year, Jonathan. Uh, that's why I was I was reflecting today, just to briefly digress. That's I was thinking I was in this like another one of those bizarro internet conversations where you re-encounter a friend of yours from the past and you somehow turn into a worse version of himself, as I'm sure all of us have. But uh and I, I suddenly, for some reason, flashed back to, I think, Treat Williams' most underrated performance of villainy in the history of his career. It's in the movie The Phantom, starring Billy Zane in the 90s. And there's, it's not a good movie, let's just say that. But the big reveal in the movie, I suddenly remembered it, which was, oh my God, Genghis Khan has hypnotized the entire city. And I thought, well, that's surprisingly relevant for our present moment. That's a little disappointing. It seems perfectly reasonable that Genghis Khan has hypnotized the entire city in hindsight. So Jeremy Corbyn, David Icke, they've got a lot of material to work from in this episode. But I think that the show, despite it leaning on anti-Semitic tropes, delivers a surprisingly strong and coherent anti-capitalist message. So my review of the show is pretty much identical to my review of the British Labour Party campaign in 2017. What are some, but there are some things that are kind of striking about the dystopia that they've set up that I think shows a fairly intelligent materialist analysis in the uh, in the writer. Um, there, really, the Pluto is in many ways the original progressivism, uh, out of which fairly different political movements emerged. Uh, so. One of the striking things about it is that initially you think that this is a totalitarian government because it keeps talking about taxes and it refers to people as citizens. And there's clearly a conscriptive element to being understood to be a citizen by the totalitarian government. And, it's, uh, and it, uh, there are all these public officials and they levy taxes. And then as the first episode goes on, you realize that it's run by something called the company. And the company is a monopolistic corporation based in another planet far away. And um, it, uh, so you see what, to people in the 1970s watching the show in 1977 would have seen as an indictment of big government, it instead is an indictment of the era to come. It's instead much more an indictment of a neoliberal order. Because one of the things about progressivism is that in its original form, it was a kind of liberalism 
And it therefore strongly opposed public ownership. Uh, instead, what it believed in was the regulation of monopolies. Uh, progressives didn't like the chaos that corporate competition produced in an economy. In fact, the whole progressive agenda was about the belief that natural systems were too chaotic and they required technocratic management. And to a 1920s or 19-teens progressive, to a follower of Teddy Roosevelt, the capitalist marketplace and ecosystems were things that were analogous. They were natural, chaotic, and therefore inefficient. And they required a commissar class to run them so that they wouldn't be chaotic and wasteful and inefficient. So the corporate, uh, and so we see then this fusion of the liberal state and corporate governance. There, uh, and it's a kind of utopia, right? What we're looking at is the dark side of early 20th century welfare capitalism. Uh, so we have this orderly thing and the thing that motivates it to be orderly according to its story about itself is its endless pursuit of efficiency and profit. So it's efficient, it's orderly and it delivers a profit. Uh, now, what are we to make of the title? I think that the title points to one of the more intelligent things about the script, something that Derek Jensen, founder of Deep Green Resistance, uh, talks about quite a lot, which is that what is most threatening to this system is the idea that there are things that natural systems produce that are not commodified, that they don't attempt to ration. So what's dan most dangerous are trees and the sun because the sun makes its energy for free and gives it away. The trees make oxygen for free and they give it away. The problem that this company has is with, to go with a biblical terminology, the lilies of the field. It's things that don't work and just are that make things and then give it away because this is problematic on two fronts. One, it shows that good things can arise without labor. And it also shows, and it also, these things create the possibility that people can have something that is not monetized, that cannot be taxed, that cannot be marketed. And so, yes, making your own food, making your own air, making your own light, these are the most subversive things. And the company, as you can see, is, um, it's not a BC company, clearly, because the company's rhetoric constantly celebrates work and industry. Even though you see that once you're up to the level of the gatherer, there are people living very decadent, non-industrious lives. But this belief in the goodness of work 
is the master discourse of the company. And it's why we see a very interesting kind of rhetoric from the, origi from the, res the original resistance movement, the pre-existing resistance movement that the doctor and Leela fall into. They insist that they don't do any work at all. They're clearly constantly doing things in order to survive. They're constantly making things, scrounging things, assembling things, repairing things, but they insist that they're not doing work because work is evil. And the discourse of that movement is lifted right out of the Wobblies. The Wobblies, unlike the OBU that competed with them, there were two different efforts right at the turn of the 20th century to organize industrial workers into a single giant global union. One was the International Workers of the World, the Wobblies, and the other was the OBU, the One Big Union. The One Big Union movement celebrated work. The Wobblies, on the other hand, believed that if they overthrew capitalism, work would end. And a number of the songs, some of which were composed by Joe Hill, are about the idea of living your life never taking a straight job again. That if one can achieve an individual dream in the wobbly cosmology, it's the idea that you spend your whole life like on the run, on the bum, as they called it in uh, the song. And that was the, the term at the time. Um, the idea that you would spend your life on the road, begging, um, doing non-monetized work, um, giving things away, taking things for free. That was wobbly heaven if you, before you could overthrow capitalism. Obviously heaven was overthrowing capitalism, but the idea that you could personally eliminate work and personally eliminating work involves the constant effacement of all the work you're doing to stay alive. And I found it very interesting that they chose to appropriate wobbly discourse for the resistance movement. Uh, so, and, there's a regionality to Wobblyism versus the OBU. Um, Wobblies tended to arise in jurisdictions like ours, rentier states. So um, yeah, Big Rock Candy Mountain. Uh, so there's a thing called the Wobbly Corridor by historians, and it follows the Rocky Mountains from Mexico to Alaska because people who adopted the anti-work ideology of the Wobblies were disproportionately miners who saw that their work was producing a fraction of the value of the thing they were permitting to be sold. Whereas in uh, places where almost all of the value is coming from work rather than raw materials like the garment industry, the OBU was much more popular. So think all that is fairly interesting. Uh, another, so one way that the show is sophisticated is the resistance's theory of work. Another way the show is sophisticated 
is the company's fixation on things that naturally give uh, uh, in a non-commodified sense and the need to shut that down. Uh, another, um, another thing that I find perhaps the most interesting about the show is the way it borrows from Orwell in talking about how the way you frame a discourse controls what people can imagine and controls what questions they can ask. This is, uh, this is pretty consistent. Uh, and it's best epitomized at the moment when the revolution succeeds and Cordo says, I order you in the name of the work units to stand trial. Uh, that's, uh, that's lovely, right? That, and, and, and Leela has to say, no, people, the word is people. Uh, and we have a lot of that. So they can't ask what the company is for. They can't ask where the profit goes. They, um, uh, and you can see that, um, this, that the, that the show is really taken in the idea that you constrain, can cons radically constrain the imagination with language. It also suggests that there is some other kind of thing, ah, uh, that is constraining it, that they've modified the atmosphere. And again, this gets back to the idea of the company being afraid of free air. Uh, but this sense that, uh, and that, that's another thing we associate with, sh uh, with this show is that it clearly states that all other things being equal, people will strive for liberty. And the only reason this isn't happening here is because of an external force sitting on top of it. And uh, we, of course, return to that theme in State of Decay in the final season, where it's directly verbalized in the, uh, the vampire show. Uh, now, there's one last part that, again, um, I think is pretty on point. Uh, this is the time the first green parties in the world are being founded in New Zealand, the UK, and in Atlantic Canada. Uh, the um, elections in 1979, the year of destiny, where the world skidded onto the timeline we're on now, uh, included the first uh, electoral outings of Green parties in the English-speaking world. Uh, and they've incorporated that into their critique of capitalism as well. That the reason that human beings are vulnerable is that they've run the earth into the ground. The reason the company is able to move them to Pluto and enslave the human race is that um, they fucked up the earth and that was their fault. The company didn't do it. The company merely saw that a group of people had destroyed the ecological wealth around them and were therefore ripe for exploitation. And again, it's a surprise that the earth has ecosystems 
that would naturally regrow. That's a piece of knowledge that can't that the humans don't take with them to uh, to Pluto. That uh, and we can see also that even though the suns are expensive for the company to run, the fact that they run down without constant inputs is a feature rather than a bug. It, uh, you're, you're, it's like you're in the Mesoamerican blood cult and you're literally throwing your body into the breach so that the sun won't run down. Uh, so yes, good point. Actual suns run down. And one of the things I really loved in this show is I had an argument with Corey about this and I'm going to show her this show and it will make no difference in the, the argument. But the, what I said was not all Novas used to be super. Uh, I was, I was very glad to hear that Suns could actually go regular Nova. Uh, that was a treat for me, uh, having enjoyed, uh, Cosmos and for that matter, Nova, uh, as a kid. Uh, now, uh, when we, when we talk about the, um, the limitations of language, there's also the flip side, which is the euphemizing of oppression and the euphemizing of death. And of course, we've got to see a lot of that the past year with CBC saying things like, well, the prime minister needs to chart a course that balances saving lives and saving jobs. Uh, we have all kinds of wonderful euphemisms for uh, killing people uh, or letting them die. And I was particularly taken with um, the collector's term for killing everyone, which was, this branch will close. Uh, so I think they, um, I think that the show is strong when it comes to uh, linguistic analysis. I think the show is strong in terms of materialism. The other thing, of course, is that it doesn't just take an environmental consciousness when it talks about the ruined earth and the restored earth, it also borrows from the analysis of those early green parties that we now can't even remember because of course their central criticism was the dependence on growth. And ultimately what the doctor does to sabotage the system is enact a growth tax which produces a feedback loop of economic destruction. That, uh, that, that, that the implicit growth of the economy in the system is <clears throat> what's keeping the company there. And it's central to the company's rapacity, et cetera. So um, anyway, uh, that's a, a lot of, um, of what I have to say. Like Talons of Wang Chang, um, there's, you know, a lot of, um, you know, there, is, there are really bad implied racial politics to this show. But there are really bad implied gender politics to nearly every one of these shows. And uh, uh, we, um, you know, we have to temper our, our enjoyment and our anthropological gaze or balance them out in a way I've never figured out how to do. 
But uh, I think that, um, and then of course, the, the last thing I'll say about it, it suggesting that the doctor, uh, that anti-capitalism is actually hardwired into the doctor. The doctor has a long history of violence and economic subversion which the doctor himself validates when he implies that he's the actual author of the Communist Manifesto. It's his turn of phrase, not Karl Marx's turn of phrase. He asks you to admire. Of course, it's a little different. So they're implying that the doctor writes the first draft and Marx and Engels publish the second. So uh, anyway, they're, uh, this isn't the essence of Doctor Who, but it is part of the golden age. And why I qualify it as part of the golden age is it's flawed, it's weird, has a lot of problems, but it chooses to put in there a bunch of fairly sophisticated observations that you wouldn't have to put in an anti-capitalist show that I think this is a sharper anti-capitalism than one generally gets out of such things. And um, on that basis, uh, I thought I'd put it on the list. So I guess we're at around, um, I guess this has been about 30 minutes. Again, I'm going a little short because I found our discussions are um, usually pretty full. So uh, I'm interested in the opinions of uh, people confronting this show uh, who here saw it for the first time. Uh, okay, well, I'd like to, um, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get reactions from the first timers first. Okay, this might take a while. Um, yeah, you keep... You're, you're, you're trying to excuse this as, as the unconscious anti-Semitism of an anti-capitalist tradition, which happens to have swept Jews in because we didn't like Jews and we don't like capitalism, so let's both dislike them at the same time. But this is not remotely possibly an accident. I think it's a deliberate strategy. What this show reflects is the expectations of the British working class that are held by the left wing of the Labour Party. And it is trying to talk the revolution in the language they understand. The problem with doing that is the problem it's always been. If you allow the capitalist and the Jew to be identical, then your working class cannot tell the difference between a socialist revolution and a Fordist pogrom. And this show depicts a Fordist pogrom. Fordist in the sense that best embodied by Aldous Huxley, of course, in, in Brave New World, which is also one of the sources for this show, obviously. Um, because the, re the thing is that the Jew has always been used by faux anti-capitalist movements, not just to say, well, capitalism is bad because look at Jews. That's how bad it is. It's really a way of saying, what is bad about capitalism is that it's the Jews doing it. And if magically we didn't have any Jews performing capital work, then we, the Christian natural Aryan people, would have a capitalism that serves us and is harmless. And that is the message of this show. It is the message of the National Socialist Driven Workers Party. It is the message of numerous 19th century uh, intellectuals on the right, most specifically Henry Ford. 
And Henry Ford's impact in this is twofold. One, the danger is the international Jew capitalism otherwise is fine. And because Ford in particular was a practitioner of the idea that you pay your workers well, your workers become your consumers. And that is in fact what happens in this show. The other thing is that this show, the reason this is, can't be an accident is because this show made in 1977 is a very precisely written critique of the Callahan government by the left wing of the Labour Party. Uh, just to be clear, I was saying that Corbyn's unconscious. I wasn't saying the author of this particular episode was unconscious, but yes, okay. I think your, your, uh, your analysis is strong here. Please carry on. Yeah. Of course, Jews are accused of being socialists, but the point is that, and socialism often is demonized as a purely Jewish creation, just as capitalism is demonized on the other side as a purely Jewish creation. The Nazis, in fact, did both simultaneously. It was Jews wherever you looked, right? They were your only saviors. But, but see, the see, the reason, so, so the thing is that this is, a, this is actually preaching a, a specific historical division within the Labour Party. It's trying to cut out and it's trying to gain popular approval for that by mobilizing anti-Semitism and one nation Toryism and simply saying, well, they're fine. They're part of the revolution because it's the revolution of the Trots versus Jim Callahan. Now you have to remember 1977 is a year that is a lot like the world of the Sunmakers. There is inflation, there, is, there are rises in taxes, there is, a balance of payments crisis. So the country is hemorrhaging money to international finance. And Jim Callahan, the progressive leader of the Labour Party who oversees all of this is half Jewish. A fact that I am sure was not in unknown to his opponents, even though he was raised a Baptist and probably never talked about it. Okay. And you can tell in part why this is, because one of the things the Callahan government did, which people complained was bankrupting the country, was giving too much money to the unions, specifically to the unionized coal miners, who are the sun makers of every British house. They're the ones who keep you warm. Because it's clear in the story that somewhere on another megalopolis that is peaceful, are the miners, the Ajax. Now what, right? They're, and they're taller than everyone else. They wear civilian clothes. They can take flights and vacations and they have consume cards with thousands of Talmars. They're rich, they're workers, but they're rich and they're well-treated by the management. And, and, the, and the, the rebels, the wobblies in the basement deeply resent them. And when they think the doctor is one of them, they almost kill him until he convinces them that, that he's really not and he's really on their side. Now, and, and what, what does Ajax mean, right? It took me until today to figure that out. Ajax, it's not just their alphas, which of course they are, they're A-grade workers, everyone else is B-grade or lower. Ajax is short for, I'm all right, Jack, which is the stock British phrase for the kind of worker who's got his own and doesn't care about you. The guy who's one has step above you on the rung and stepping on your head. <laughs> um, I mean, no, look, it's an old British expression. It's kind of fallen out of use, but it was like when I moved to Britain in, in the 90s, if I accidentally said, but I'm all right, my boss would go, Jack. And I knew that my boss was looking down at me because my boss was a working class guy, even though he was a professor. <laughs> 
Um, and so, and he was suspicious of me, right? So there, there was, so what we're looking at is a split within the union, within the working class between unionized and not, a ressentiment on the basis of the non-unionized workers, people like, I don't know, the BBC production crews, who are mad at the fact that in this inflationary environment, the miners who can go on strike get pay raises that keep up with inflation and the people who can't go on strike don't. And it is that lower working class that is going to bring about, they hope, the revolution. But what kind of revolution is it? Because one thing you notice is that the, what Jordan Peterson would call the hierarchy of competence in established by the company is in fact the natural hierarchy. Maybe they've been, maybe this is a, a nod to Huxley, maybe it's not, but you'll notice that Ordo, the, the Delta who triggers this whole series of events is incompetent at everything and constantly needs guidance. He's cowardly when he should fight. He's enthusiastic when restraint is required. He, he doesn't um, keep a watch on, on the corridor he's meant to watch because he's too busy looking at the television, right? He's, he's a constant fuck up. The leader of the resistance movement is a beta. He's the highest ranking worker that ended up down there in the basement. So the natural hierarchy of things is in fact not being disturbed, right? The organic class relations are not being disturbed by the revolution. You know, no one doubts that the Ajax is still going to, you know, be above the betas when, when the revolution is over. Maybe not as far above, but above. And no one can doubt that Marn, the gatherer who is smart enough to join the revolution, is probably going to wind up in a good position. And why is she named Marn? She's Marn Grit Thatcher. She's the person who works for the Jews, but is smart enough to, to understand smart enough to understand that breaking the unions is the right move and reestablishing an organic nationalist, um, you know, genuinely human government is the thing is the thing in the future, right? She's this ineffectual opposition figure throughout the move throughout the show. But Margaret Thatcher is the leader of the opposition at this time, and she represents a very Jewish neighborhood. But this revolution actually seems to position her as the natural future leader, as was in fact the case. The left wing of the British Labour Party sabotaged Jim Callaghan and the Tories took power, straightforwardly, right? I mean, the thing about, the thing about this is not only is Jeremy Corbyn mandrel, but, um, you know, but the enemy, in fact, has been Keir Starmer from the outset because Keir Starmer was a guy who, were, who was a lawyer for the coal miners. The coal miners are the enemy, right? Keir Starmer is an Ajax. They don't want him. They would rather have Tories. And this is the Labour Party we have. So you're not wrong in saying that this show sets the consciousness for the 2017 and the 2019 elections in Britain perfectly. Nothing has changed, like not a thing. This is the problem. Okay, I'm gonna go to Margaret. Uh, that was just excellent. Um, I, uh, I, I, you've got to teach one of these, Jonathan, if uh, we can find the time because uh, uh, that was superb. Uh, Margaret, go ahead. Well, I'm thinking when I watched it, um, I was thinking in terms that 
um, the person doing all the accounting, now I've forgotten his name, um, you know, the one at the end that dissolved. The collector. Thank you, the collector, right. Um, when the man who was giving all the orders came into his view, he suddenly became a subservient. And um, I thought that was extremely, um, because I think his whole behavior outside of the collector's office was toxic masculinity. And so I think that when he came in to the collector's office, he suddenly realized that I better be careful. And when I see toxic masculinity, that's quite often what I see. Like I think Hitler had toxic masculinity. I think Putin has definitely got toxic masculinity. And if they ever come up against as Hitler did, people who can outsmart them or God forbid hurt them, they have to run. And um, that's what I thought when he walked into the room with the collector. Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, one of the most, one of the strongest arguments I've, I've heard about um, the hegemony of gender norms is that um, we often, you know, we often say that, you know, uh, in criticisms of modern identity politics that men know so little about being women. Um, until, of course, you see a man with a much more powerful man. Uh, and, then, uh, and then all kinds of subconscious knowledge just wells up uh, in terms of uh, tone of voice, body language, everything there. So I think watching, seeing, who, uh, seeing, the, collect, uh, seeing the gatherer in these different social positions, uh, it reveals a lot about uh, masculinity and how it functions in a system like this. Okay, I'm going. I'm gonna uh, keep going. Uh, continue the 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 round. Um, uh, Edward, uh, what was your impression? I'm sorry, I've caught you with your mouthful. I, uh, please forgive me. It's at, you know. Okay. Um, well, when when it started, I felt I should start humming the Beatles "Taxman" song. <laughs> I did read it was originally intended to be. A government, not a corporation, but the execs did not uh, approve of that. Needed it toned down. So that's how. That's the starting point I watched it with. So the producers actually shaved some of the anti-Semitism off uh, in terms of direct analogy to the state at the time. Uh, that's. Well, I haven't found a reference to it, but I'm guessing the the inner retinue was a simple cut and paste for inland revenue. Because mm. inner retinue for a bunch of guards it doesn't make sense as, as a label. You know, you and Jonathan have spent a lot more time thinking about how words sound. I should really move my lips more when I'm developing these lectures. I think I'm losing stuff by not moving them. And I saw a reference that the eyebrows on the collector were somewhat reminiscent of the eyebrows on the Chancellor of the Exchequer at that time. Mm. 
So yes, more, more subtle digs at the government. Uh, so, uh, uh, Alana, uh, your impressions uh, watching this again. Well, unfortunately, I have to confess I was not able to watch this uh, recently. So I, I don't have a whole lot to add because most of my impressions are based on having watched it quite a long time ago. Um, uh, but um, yeah, I was I was reading up on the yeah the Eruditorum Press entry on the on the episode, and apparently um, Robert Holmes was having uh, some kind of dispute about taxes at the time. <laughs> so there's a, an element of personal uh, um, affront involved, but it but also. It is kind of a nicely anarchic, you know, approach to uh, the situation that people were in at the time where, yeah, inflation was out of control. Um, we were sort of coming off the post-war sort of height of the, the capitalist welfare state and things were, things were not great. And uh, yeah, what, 1977, was it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's when you start getting a lot of, well, like that's when punk started and all, all of that. Like there's this whole sort of, um, I don't know, everything's fucked and let's, yeah. Uh, Michael. I, uh, I definitely enjoyed uh, some of the failed symbolism. I um, I actually got a little distracted by how much the uh, collector reminded me of Doctor Evil, so I didn't um, I didn't really peg too much to the anti-Semitic piece so much as uh, the kind of and, and, you know, watching this today versus 20 years ago, all of the rhetoric of the collector just sounded like modern corporate propaganda speak. Like he's talking about everything being about efficiency and profit, but really it's not. It, that's what he says, but that's not really what anybody cares about. And it's not gonna, he's not going to be judged that way. The system is not actually run that way at all. And what I really was interested in was the gas, the uh, the stuff they were pumping into the air to keep the people under control. So as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, what is this supposed to symbolize? What are the what are the writers wanting this gas to mean in 1977? Is it television? Is it the lies of the British newspapers? that are keeping the workers under their thumb. What is that gas in 1977? What is it really meant to be? Uh, I also, from what um, Jonathan was saying about the alphas and the betas and the deltas was a nice, um, you know, crossover for the British class system that has never gone away. And I totally had that same feeling that yeah, okay, you're having a revolution, but we all know that the, you know, the 
the highborn are going to be in charge no matter what new system you come up with. The, um, the other thing that I, I found really funny was the gatherer uh, reminded me a lot dialogue wise of the captain from the pirate planet with that wonderfully flowery uh, language that he would use to address the collector. And I thought that his, his retinue were meant to be Praetorian guards, that even though this is set up as a symbol of capitalism and a corporation, really the collector is an emperor and it's all just a facade and that those are his personal guards. They don't actually work for the company. So this isn't really what's going on. It's just another uh, uh, king or a chieftain or whoever managed to get to the top of the heap with his little crew of his little gang. I also thought it was weird the way they set up the like the revolutionaries that were there before and how they react to the doctor showing up and trying to push them in a slightly different direction to get their revolution going and how suspicious they are of him because he looks like an upper class twit. But uh, yeah, that was, that was my impression. Well, uh, number one, and I posted it in the chat. I mean, the first time I saw this in 2004, the collector reminded me of a, a local Toronto labor uh, political legend, uh, Julius Deutsch. Um, and I actually put that out there ago, uh, to a few people who might know both uh, Henry Wolf and uh, Julius. Are they related? And there's some, some people said there's a chance, but they were born in completely different places. Um, Wolf born in England and uh, Julius born in South Africa. Anyway, other than that simple, um, similarity, uh, one of the big things I found about this uh, particular episode, I mean, again, number one, it's prime uh, for, um, fourth doctor. Uh, he's improvi improvisational, but my God, the whole, as people have mentioned, 1984, the whole Brechtian kind of thing happening, the, uh, in some cases, um, German expressionist sets from the 1920s, from the Weimar Republic. The very opening looks like something that came over Brecht, or um, even uh, maybe even uh, a film from the new, from German Expressionism. Just very minimalist kind of sets that are at odd angles and so forth. It was kind of weird uh, watching that. And then, for me, looking at it um, again, I'm I tend to look at these things more technically and from an aesthetic point of view. Um, the amount of 16 mil film used in this episode is uh, quite extraordinary. So it would sound like they had a lot of budget for this. Um, because you, you notice as soon as uh, they go from dealing with the death of, uh, at the very beginning, you go and see the TARDIS materialize, supposedly outside, um, it's in 16 mil, and they go into different sequences even inside. That time when Leela uh, is shot, and they have that kind of uh, machine gun device uh, slash Jeep, whatever you want to call it, um, that's shot in film. And that's an interior, which is kind of really odd in Doctor Who. They're shooting in film in an interior. So yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was kind of um, interesting. And I don't know what that involved in terms of special effects. Maybe that's why they did it that way. Uh, because again, in many ways, special effects in some ways were easier to do in film back in 1977 than doing it on video. Um, 
But in terms of the themes, well, one theme I never, and being an atheistic Jew, um, I didn't particularly see this as anti-Semitic. And I don't think that Corbyn is anti-Semitic, the former leader of the Labour Party recently. Um, but I can see where there are certain tropes that are in there that could be conceived as that. Um, I saw it more uh, as, I guess, uh, a prologue to the future, because uh, as other people have pointed out, I mean, this is showing, <laughs> this is the fact, you know, they're talking about Thatcherism, Reaganism, and in fact, what we're into today. So uh, the neoliberal movement getting control of everything and dismantling the welfare state. And this writer sees that and portrays it that way. I mean, ultimately, we become uh, this corporation that Elon Musk has set up on Mars and we deplete Mars. So once Musk depletes Mars, we now go off to Pluto. Um, although I'm a minor fan of Musk, more about his space uh, technology than I am about his personal views and stuff. But the thing is, uh, the progression here on that was humans destroyed Earth. These aliens came by who happened to be ultra capitalists. They transport them from Earth to Mars. They take everything, they extract all the resources from Mars. And then again, after taxing uh, people, they then move them to another planet and so forth and so forth. Be like on Earth, going from one region to another in Canada, ah, you burn down everything in Cape Breton. Well, let's go and uh, after you mined all the coal out of the Cape Breton seam, let's go and do it in. Um, I don't know, let's do it in the nickel belt and we'll do nickel instead of coal. I mean, it's just that they kept moving on to different locations, um, which was interesting. And again, labor movements came out of that. I mean, the labor movement, the organized minor movement in Canada came out of Cape Breton. Um, the United Mine Workers first formed a union in 1936 in Cape Breton in the, Gla in the Glace Bay pit. Um, and that was after you know, uh, other unions were trying to unionize other miners across the country and they couldn't do it. And finally the nine mine workers did. And as other people pointed out, they did distrust other folks who were from the left and they would sooner vote for a conservative versus maybe a liberal um, who might be there. In fact, these guys became so powerful that in 1940 they elected the first CCFer uh, east of Winnipeg. So, you know, electing Claire Gillis back in, I think it was December, sorry, March 26, 1940, um, they, that gave the union movement its first real um, push that they could be effective within politics. So seeing how that relays back here into this film or this TV episode, you're seeing that the miners and everyone else starting to kind of get, well, hey, we have political agency. We can actually do things. And then the doctor allowed everything to happen and figuring out what was going on. But I actually, this is the maybe the third time I've seen this episode. I never got that uh, the doctor said that he wrote the original uh, text of uh, the Communist Manifesto. So I had to rewatch it. <laughs> Which is lovely. <laughs> Which that's, is also a tiny bit of drive-by anti-Semitism as well. Uh, yeah. That Marx is passing off someone else's work as his own. Uh, anyway, Jonathan, you were going to respond Although to some The points. doctor does also claim to have written uh, a bunch of the works of William Shakespeare and various other people. So, Yes, true enough. Yeah, this, is, this is kind of par for the course for the doctor and, and you know, 
but after, but also I think in, in this episode, to some extent, they were playing with the fact that the doctor looks Jewish. Tom Baker looks well, Jewish. He is Jewish. <laughs> but Tom Baker is. His father's okay. Jewish. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's like half Jewish. Jewish. I mean, he's brought up Catholic. Right. right. Like Jim Callahan's dad. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so they're conscious of that, clearly. Now, the problem with this, the problem with this, this is the, the finely grained anti-Semitism that atheistic socialist Jews don't see and perpetrate. Because the thing is that the capitalist archetype didn't strike me as anti-Semitic until right at the end, where it just turns out that he's a, from a usurious race of shape-shifting alien parasites. <laughs> and the problem with that is, first off, it's <laughs> I mean, that's who we are, right? We all know that. So that the identification is kind of obvious. But so, but the other thing is, not only is that anti-Semitic, it completely eliminates any actual useful Marxist content from your revolution. Because what it says is the problem of capitalism is that the Jews, not capital, not, they're actually what it says is there's no such thing as capitalism. There's just economic activity by the bourgeoisie, which will be fine and never cause any problems except Jews, right? And the problem of course, is when you have a working class whose consciousness never goes beyond that, and you have a party trying to win over the allegiance of that working class, the party has to be demonstrably anti-Semitic in order to remain credible, particularly if the party is full of Jews, which it is, right? It's not a coincidence that the extravagant, ridiculous, theatric anti-Semitism of the left in particular is, is run by Jews, like Momentum, which is the most anti-Zionist left part of the Labour Party, is run by a Jew, right? The thing is that all of these Jews are in a position where they understand that they're vulnerable to the beliefs of the working class unless they dem demonstrate in some obvious way that they're not that kind of Jew. And the way they do it is they say, well, we hate Israel. And they hate Israel in this cartoonish, dishonest way. <laughs> And, it's, it's, and the thing is, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an honest signal to their followers because it is a costly signal. Once you've done that, you know there's no going back. They can't be a Jew, the Jews of international capital because the Jews will hate them because they're anti-Zionists. Right? It serves the same function on the left. It is the same thing. I mean, seriously, it's the same thing because the intent of it is the same. I think, well, let me qualify this. Anti-Zionism by... Christians is anti-Semitic. Anti-Zionism by Arabs is, is its own thing. Um, it's, the thing is, it's effectively the same thing because the Jews will see it the same way, right? Like, like if you're anti-Zionist enough, the Jews will, will run away. It doesn't matter. And, and this is why it has to be cartoonish, right? Because you could, you could adopt an anti-Zionist position that is critical, that is rational, that is reasonable, that is in harmony with your general position on human rights and so on, and they don't do it. They deliberately never do it. They always go for the lies and the, and the insults and the farcical claims deliberately and avoid making any concrete demands of Israel that actually could ever be a policy. Because it is in fact a theater of saying, I'm not that kind of Jew. It serves the same function as Trump's racism where you know, he'll, he'll insult people of all, I mean, Trump racism is probably genuine, but the Trumpists are not actually interested in a racist policy. For the most part, they're, they're just 
will it, they're just saying it so that they the liberal elites will reject them. They've made an honest like this is how Trump established that he wasn't exactly like his friends, the Clintons. Well, I'm a racist. They'll never take me back. He didn't actually do anything about race because he doesn't care about races. He doesn't care about white people in general, but he needs to establish his bona fides. And so he's making the costly signal. And it's exactly the same with Corbyn and Memento. Uh, this, so, I mean, I think... Sorry, I was going to say a couple of years no, no, ago, no, we did... There were. Of course, uh, of course, just, there were, and and you know, my, just, my I mean, my great grandfather was one of them, um, though he came around. So there I was lots of, just I mean, just I a sec, just them. a sec. Um, so first of all, I think that this is a useful piece of analysis because you can see that one of the features of Trumpism um, is that um, you know one of the ways that he's able to appeal to working class unionized Americans in West Virginia is not merely doing anti uh, doing racism; it's staging anti-Semitism in a fairly similar way to the left to prominently feature Kushner pointlessly. Um, but at the same time, the, the pageantry of the opening of the Jerusalem embassy, where you get the evangelical preachers there directly saying to the camera, creating this embassy will lead to the extermination of the Jews, right? That this will trigger the end times. If we put the embassy here, it's, this is it. The, we're going to get rid of all the Jews. And it's insane, like, to have Netanyahu have to stand there and clap for a speech about his impending murder. Yeah, but, uh, but you understand that we don't believe that stuff. Right, so... But there is a large element, um, I think, of conflict between Catholic eschatology and, and evangelical eschatology, yeah. between left and right. And I mean, I think you, you covered okay. this in, in the Trailer Park Boys class. And, and you see it very directly when people like Dimitri Lascaris say, you know, with Israel? Israel is allied with the evangelicals. That's literally half his argument against Israel. And it has nothing to do with Israel. Uh, it, but he hates the evangelicals more than he hates the Jews, apparently. <laughs> Which uh, is kind of sad, but there it is. Anyway, I was just going to add a couple of points here. So um, it is important to recognize that the Usorians don't create the human's problem. So I don't think the argument that, I don't think the show the one area where I'll disagree with you, Jonathan, is that I don't think that the show is arguing that capitalism works if you take the Jews out. Because in their story of their proxy Jews, capitalism destroys the human race and they're bailed out by the proxy Jewish characters. So I think that the underlying, I think that especially because they bother importing these Green Party arguments that have not been heard before about the nature of growth. I do think that the anti-growth stuff and the fact that humans had already fucked things up, I would otherwise, uh, I otherwise agree with all of your observations. The other thing I was going to say that's um, um, interesting is the tying of progressivism to the closing of the frontier. Right, because um, these are contemporaneous things that happen at the end of the 19th century. And that in fact, there's a relationship between those things. That this new belief that natural systems need to be managed, that new efficiencies have to be found, all of that stuff, the search for order 
is triggered in America by the closing of the frontier. And I think that the way they talk about the human beings using up the solar system until here they are is showing how there's this relationship between totalitarian social control, between these new forms of social control and the closing of the frontier that we're now in a, we've gone from an infinite material environment to an expanding material environment to a finite material environment. And it's that switch from the expanding infinite to the finite in terms of the physical world that, um, that produces so much of the, um, of that. And of course, Europe has its own equivalent of the closing of the frontier. It's the Berlin conference in 1884. The global frontier closes uh, at that point. And so the search for order, the rationing, the management, uh, the celebration of management arises from the end of the frontier. I think the other thing that is good about a good script is that if it's thinking clearly about its thematic material, it will talk about patterns that continue to manifest after the script has been written. And I think Joey's done, done a good job of identifying some of those things. I would note that coal and steel workers being privileged within a socially, within a controlled system is a recurrent theme, right? We're, we're three years from solidarity in Poland. Um, Right, the number one source of social disorder in China is steel and coal workers' strikes in uh, in China's internal periphery. Uh, so I think that, um, uh, and in fact, for both China and the Soviet Union, overpaying your steel workers is central to the ideology, because especially in the mind of Soviet Russia. The belief was that mining coal, mining iron, and making steel made you a communist. And so the USSR understood its steelmaking factories and its big coal and iron mines in the Urals, not as steel factories. Steel was a thing that the factories were making in order to manufacture the real product, which was real communists. And that's why they built a steel mill in Vladivostok and it cost too much to shish. Uh, they had to move all the iron and coal from the Urals to Vladivostok by rail. And so the steel was so expensive by the time it was made that it was just dumped into the Sea of Okhotsk. Uh, the USSR produced more steel than the rest of the world combined every year at the height of the Soviet empire because the steel was a, was a substance being used to make a kind of person. So I think there's a way in which the Ajax thing plays out beyond the planned economy of Britain's coal mines into some larger thematic stuff about technocratic states. Uh, Michael, you're raring to go and then I'll go to Jonathan. Yeah, I, I would love to dive back into the how you can be a Zionist without being anti-Semitic. But um, one thing that just triggered in my head when you were talking about that, there's a scene in the fourth episode that surprised me. When the gatherer goes on to the roof 
and um, their workers are up there. And he declares, what on earth are you people doing up here? You're supposed to be working and they're getting access to the sun. And he says that uh, they, they don't deserve to have the sun because it's too good for them. Or it's, uh. it, it's, it's not that they're stealing from the company, it's that it's beneath their class, that they shouldn't have access to it. It's only meant for the good people. And then they throw him off the fucking roof. Like, this was so surprising to me. I thought, oh, they're just going to grab him and you know, bundle him back downstairs and go back to enjoying the sun. No, no, they just picked him up and heaved him off the roof. And I was so blown away by that. That really surprised me. And I wondered how that got past standards and practices. I thought for <laughs> sure they would have said, no, 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 no. You are not throwing a manager off the building. <laughs> well, uh, they might have been Tories. Tories, um, Tories will turn against your manager if it suits them because they represent the owner class, not the managerial class. Uh, to Jonathan and Manoa. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, uh, the thing about the anti-Zionism, there were a lot of arguments, but they mostly ended among Jews and with, with left-wing Jews saying, we don't need Israel. I mean, they were left. I mean, the thing is there was a split within left-wing Judaism, right? Because there were people who were internationalists who said, well, listen, we can just have socialism everywhere and then Jews will be fine. And then there were the left-wingers who said, no, what we're going to do is build socialism for Jews alone. We're gonna do it in Israel. And, um, but basically the war ended those arguments. And, and it was like, okay, we have to have state power. Um, clearly, even the anarchists, like my great grandfather said, actually we have to have state power <laughs> or we're dead. And that's all there is to it. And the fact is it's, I mean, I think Jews in the West, left-wing atheistic Jews in the left live in this fantasy world where they think that the West has stopped being anti-Semitic and that's it, it's over, we're safe. First off, we weren't safe in the West until Israel started kicking ass and scaring anti-Semites, okay? I mean, my father used to get beaten up on the at Winnipeg beach because he was a Jew. You know, he'd be beaten up by Ukrainian street gangs in, in Winnipeg because he was a Jew. This never happened to me. The first time someone punt, someone assaulted me because I was a Jew, it was a left-wing friend who pushed me and said, now you feel angry, don't you? Well, how did you think the Palestinians feel? You push people, they get angry. He just pushes me out of nowhere because suddenly it's occurred to him that I need to understand something about the Palestinians like I don't fucking know. <laughs> okay. So the anti-Semitism of the right went away because the government told people it would go away. They said, first off, the Jews are hard as fuck. Secondly, there are allies. They can kick Arab ass. Clearly they're white people. They're good. You know, so Israel has only been a net benefit for Jews outside of Israel. And if it ever goes away, we're in serious trouble. But from the outset, I mean, like we knew that we were getting in trouble with the Arabs when, when we went there, right? But we have a long, good history of getting on with the Arabs. We have no such history of getting on with Europeans. You have to understand that Israel is founded on an historical gamble. It is the bet that, we, that it is safer to have Arab enemies than European friends. And I have to say my European friends have never failed to convince me that this is correct. <laughs> Which Stuart knows. Really? 
yes, yes, it's a complete nonsense. Historically, it makes no sense. And there is zero in the experience of being an Arab in Israel that is like being a black person in South Africa. I mean, Israel isn't an equal, a state of great egalitarianism, but frankly, it's about as discriminatory as Quebec. I think it's, um, wow. um, I would say, I would say the Bantustan system is analogous. Other elements of apartheid, not so, but I do think that the best analogy to the occupied territories is a Bantustan in terms of the constitutional order and the past laws associated. Actually, it's not. Aware that it's really English not. Not people to, in Quebec had not. to go through checkpoints. Okay, first off, I would like to point out that I lived in Israel ten years into the occupation. Sure. There were no checkpoints. If you had lived in Israel 20 years into the occupation, there would be no checkpoints. The checkpoints yep. were put up in the 2000s in response to the suicide bombing campaign only. And frankly, the system is falling apart because now that Yasser Arafat is dead, we don't need it. And we know we don't need it. Okay. The occupation was invisible on the ground. It's unlike the Bantustan system because at no point did Israel say, here are our citizens living in our country, but we're going to call this part of our country not our country and them not our citizens. That never happened. Okay. There was, a, there was someone else's country that got incorporated, got taken under Israeli control, and because the people there had made a claim of, of an alternate national identity, the Israelis said, and for other political reasons, the Israelis said, okay, look, this is occupied enemy territory. It's not our country. These are not our citizens. And they're not going to be. And for the first three years, basically for the first 10 years of the occupation, the Israeli position was, we're going to hand this back to Jordan in a peace deal. Surely they can't just be so crazy that they're going to give this all away. And it never happened, which is why things have gotten kind of worse and complicated. The intention was, they called it the Occupied Territory because they were planning to give it back with those uh, people. I would, I would, there, but that's actually, there is additional analogous material there because of course the Bantustan system came into being between 1972 and 84. The South African National Party took power in 1948. Um, so yeah, there's, there's the, the Bantustans are a late elaboration of a system that's failing. And I would argue that the current situation in the occupied territories is an elaboration of a system that's failing that has run down over decades. I don't I, uh, the, problem, the, the other problem is, is that you think it's failing. It's really not. It's doing exactly what's intended to do. Oh, I'm convinced of that, but the same was true of, but ultimately the things, right? What happened was the RAND became a garbage currency. It's not like it would have internally failed in South Africa either. Anyway, I'm simply pointing out that there, there are, re that using the analogy, the the it misses we, a lot, but it does, yeah, there are reasons. The thing is, as, as a careful historian, you find reasons why, the, why, the, why you can use the word in good conscience, but I have to tell you that no one, who uses the word the way Michael does, is thinking of these things in remotely the same way. They are thinking that what it means is we are white people colonizing brown people. They think what it means is that there is not, is not merely descriptive, but prescriptive. Calling Israel an apartheid state means we solve it the way we solved South Africa. We have sanctions and then they surrender and become a, ma a democratic majority Arab state, the whole thing. And this is a fantasy. I, I would disagree with what you just said, but. 
I have to go to dinner now. And I would love outside of a Doctor Who course to for Jonathan, for you and I to have a chat about this because we are so far apart. Like I can't even get my arms around it. And I'm yeah. fascinated to hear. It's because uh, every single fact you know about Palestine is wrong. That's why. <laughs> I am uh, confident of that. <laughs> so, every single historical fact you think you're in possession of is incorrect. Oh my God, this is going to be the best. This is, um, <laughs> so I just want it noted for the historical record that there are some debates in which Stuart Parker has the middle position. Uh, <laughs> I know that these are, uh, these are extremely rare. Uh, and, uh, but I, I really, um, well, you know, I, I've been in a fair bit of trouble on, but, you know, the great thing is that on the left, you can, um, take positions on Zionism and, uh, without cancellation, um, just with consequences, just, uh, but I, I do think that, um, many, I think that one of the, the strangest things just to go to, um, one of the things that you invoke that I find the weirdest about anti-Israel discourse is that many people will say, well, you know, oh, these are white Europeans who colonized brown Arab people and they blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you and I have talked about that, right? Israel has become demographically a partition state, not a colonial state. That's just not true demographically anymore. It's, it's caused by the confessional partition of the Middle East that forced the Mizrahi and the Sephardim into Israel to dodge pogroms in places like Baghdad. So I think that, that there's, there's an element of, of that there. But what I find so curious is the people who insist on, oh, this is an Ashkenazi European colonial state that's oppressing all these people and they should just leave. But these are the same people in Canada who described Canada the same way. And it mystifies me um, why they don't think they should leave. Um, it, uh, it's like, well, if you use identical language to describe Canada and Israel, and if you believe the solution is that pe- persons of European extraction should leave, then what are you doing here? How did you, yes. why, why would you choose rhetoric that immediately exposes hypocrisy. And I think Jonathan's offered me the first satisfactory answer I've heard, which is that you don't say real things, you say cartoonish things. If your anti-Semitism is too accurate, if it's too data-based, it doesn't persuade the people it's supposed to persuade. And I had never really understood that as part of why the debate's so crazy. I thought, why would people say things that immediately, where they immediately cast themselves as hypocrites? And uh, anyway, first answer I've got. Um, I um, uh, Is there anything not regarding the Israeli-Palestine conflict that people <laughs> would like to observe before we leave this episode? Um, because it's seven o'clock. Okay. Yeah, I well, I want to I want to thank um oh, M- Margaret was going to say Margaret go. Okay, I just want to say to everybody, please don't forget about me. If you have yeah. anything that you think I'll be interested in, and that includes all of you, because I have really met very special people. You've given me thoughts I wouldn't have thought of in, you know, 50 years. 
So please don't forget about me. I'm always willing to learn. We should we should make well, a, like um been, uh, very nice to meet you, Margaret. Yeah. And you will have one more chance. Yes, we have one more session. So yeah. yeah. We shall reconvene on. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I it's it's very possible I didn't recognize the, the program as being anti-Semitic because it was so cartoonish and over the top. It never occurred to me that I was talking about Jewish. <laughs> um, but yes as Jonathan said Jonathan said I might be too close to the original material um yeah I I I thought it was funny and um witty script aside from the weird cartoonish villains and um I, I was wondering if if Douglas Adams had actually written it at some point, there was some linguistic stuff that tipped me that that, that might be the case, but apparently I was wrong, so. Well, Robert Holmes is one of their best writers. Um, he's one of their most skilled writers. And this actually helps me segue into introducing the final episodes. Um, the, um, there's a naturalness to the dialogue. The dialogue is weird and verbose, but there's a naturalness to the dialogue during the golden age. Brace yourselves for unnatural speech. Uh, <laughs> the McCoy era has, uh, has good things about it. There are ways they pull the show out of the fire and set up the, re uh, the, uh, the continuation in 2004. But the idea that like things with a pulse uh, talk like this is um, is often challenging in uh, <laughs> um, in a way I would compare it to Hal Hartley surrealism that Hal Hartley does a subtle kind of surrealism in his movies. The only thing that's surreal about them is that the characters all say exactly what they mean. Mm. and uh it it is totally uncanny to have yes. people saying what they yes need. it's not not quite like how humans actually interact but it's yeah no i don't think this is necessarily going for meaning but there's some process of distillation that's going on between human dialogue and the way people talk in the mccoy era and I'd be really, I'm, I'm signaling this now because um, like the third mile, I've got, I've got no term for what they're doing to the words. And if people see patterns that I haven't seen, I'm, I'm eager to hear them. So uh, let's convene at 5.30 and um, uh, on, uh, on Wednesday. And I wanna thank, um, I want to thank all of you for bringing your whole selves to this. And um, I think that there's a lot of uh, vulnerability uh, that people are putting out there. Um, I think that, um, especially over the course of this class, uh, Jonathan and Margaret have um, really put themselves out there as human beings. And uh, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. So see you Wednesday.